This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 120. Today we continue our discussion of Christ and culture with a look at theological undercurrents. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org slash donate. Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. This is episode number 120, and my name is Camden Busey. Today we are continuing our Christ and Culture series. This is our fourth installment and the final issue from round one of our recordings. We have sought to bring together several different perspectives that represent different strands of Reformed thinking on Christ and culture. Now, this is a debate, and so we ask that you listen intently and critically to each view. Today, we complete round one of three separate rounds of recording. Rounds two and three will be opportunities for each participant to criticize the opposing views. This first round simply involves each participant answering a series of standard questions in order to orient each view within the overall landscape. Today, we will be presenting our section on theological undercurrents, which includes a discussion of natural law, common grace, and eschatology. Our first participant is Dr. Nelson Klosterman, who teaches at Mid-America Reformed Seminary. Here Dr. Klosterman explains his view of common grace. Yeah, my, I, I locate the doctrine of common grace in the area of providence, the doctrine of providence, by which I mean to suggest that God in his providence has uh, seen to it that there remain in a fallen creation uh, glimmerings of natural light, as the canons of Dort like to speak of that, remnants of natural light, uh, residue of, uh, of the original uh, glory and beauty and uprightness of the original creation. God has seen to it. He, ma- he maintains those remnants and glimmerings. And uh, as far as I know, um, in, in the teaching of John Calvin, for example, uh, who acknowledged the doctrine of common grace, and thus I do too. Um, however, for him, it functioned strictly and solely and narrowly as the basis for rendering unbelievers without excuse. Mm. My difficulty with some versions of common grace is that they become the fuel, that the doctrine becomes the fuel for culture building and culture transformation, and even for rapprochement between Christians and non-Christians in the public square. Suddenly, common grace now becomes the platform for uh, cooperation um, and uh, between Christians and non-Christians, and I, I find that to be a bit, a bit problematic. Our second participant is Doug Wilson who is pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and faculty member at New St. Andrews College. I, I do affirm uh, the doctrine of common grace. I, I, uh, I believe it's an important uh, biblical truth. 
Um, we are to imitate the Father who makes the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, and the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. And, and I believe that this is objectively God's goodness and grace uh, to the non-believer. Um, and it can be experienced as a good as a good thing. Nevertheless, I also uh, would want to say that God's grace, when God's grace is despised in unbelief and someone in his insolence take, tries to take advantage of it, the more grace he has received, the greater the judgment for him. So at the end of the day, someone could say, taking the eternal perspective or the eschatological perspective, at the end of the day, was this grace true grace for this person well it it was a it incurred a greater judgment for him it is not he is not experiencing it as grace no but god's grace is objectively what it is um now about let me, let me give you two two quick examples these are not common grace but they illustrate the principle so paul calls the cup of blessing in corinthians he calls the lord's supper the cup of blessing, but some of the Corinthians had died, were sick, and had died because of because they were drinking from the cup of blessing, um, which is a funny, uh, a weird way to think about blessing. But the but Paul doesn't call it the cup of blessing and cursing. It's still objectively the cup of blessing, which if you uh, approach in unbelief, it will be your undoing. Or when um, uh, um, uh, the the fellow when the ark of the covenant was being brought back and the oxen stumbled and he reached up and you know tried to hold the ark you know he he was struck down because he let, I don't know where he grabbed the ark but let's say he touched the mercy seat and <laughs> it fell down dead uh, well that's some mercy seat you got going there <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but the mercy seat remains the mercy seat it doesn't become the mercy and damnation seat it's the mercy seat. And so common grace is common grace. It's set before the world as, as a portrayal of God's gracious character. But as I'm fond of saying, grace has a backbone, and grace is not um, ultimate goopy tolerance. Grace, is, uh, grace has standards. Grace has a backbone. So when grace is despised, the common grace to the person who despises it becomes the opposite. third participant is Daryl G. Hart. Dr. Hart teaches at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania, as well as Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Here Dr. Hart explains his view of common grace. I, and I know I'm a curmudgeon um, and a naysayer, and some even have even said I'm uh, idiosyncratic and peculiar. Uh, but I'm not sure why we need common grace when we have theological categories and doctrines that all already seem to cover it, those being creation and providence. It seems to me that we've neglected, actually, as Reformed Christians anyway, the doctrines of creation and providence because we've given so much attention, perhaps, to, com- to common grace. Uh, and, I, and I don't mind I – I'm, I'm not opposed to common grace. I'm, sorry, I'm not on a warpath to get people to use the phrase. Um, but – I would prefer to t- talk in terms of creation and providence so that God has created all things and then he's providentially uh, set up an order 
that uses all sorts of secondary means to accomplish his ends. I, I think that covers a lot of what Common Grace tries to do, um, even though I know specifically in the case of the Christian Reformed Church in 1924 when there were debates over it, when the Protestant Reformed left the Christian Reformed over this doctrine, there were other issues involved, such as the, um, the extent of the proclamation, the free proclamation of the gospel, things like that. Um, but as far as using common grace to affirm that unbelievers can get some things true, um, I, I don't necessarily have any problem with that, except that I've too often, and this is probably what made me start to think about a um, not wanting to use the idea, that too often it's sort of used as a shorthand to uh, explain how believe, unbelievers come to knowledge of the truth in the natural world or the common world. And and then we just sort of chalk it up to God and don't really give the unbeliever any credit. Now, I don't want to take any credit away from God. God is behind everything, and this is just part of God's great, wonderful creation, that there you have these unbelievers who can do marvelous things and actually benefit God's people through those things. But it's also the case, oftentimes, that unbelievers have worked really long and hard to come to these insights. Leon Cass is, again, one of these guys who I think um, – Common grace just doesn't do justice to the the incredible thinking that he has done about the human body, the form, the way we eat, what it says about us as creatures. And he's very clear that the as creatures, so he believes in creation. And I mean, as a Jew, you would expect him to believe in creation. But so I, mean, I, I just don't know that common grace always does a proper service to the real insights that that unbelievers have, even though I don't want to say that they come to these insights apart from God, because I don't come to any insights apart from God either. But but I do think that part, as part of God's creation and the part of the way he's made these people as thinking, reflecting human beings, and he's given them wisdom, yes, but then they've cultivated that wisdom in certain ways as well, but through long, hard study and writing and reflection. Um, I, I don't know that common grace always gets at all that stuff and pays them the proper respect. So, again, they've, they've been created a certain way by God to have these insights. God has blessed them in all sorts of ways uh, with, with smarts or other, or other sensitivities to see these things. Um, and then God providentially gives these people to his church in a way sometimes, I mean, to actually b- to bless us, even though they, they themselves don't necessarily see that they're blessing God's people, but they may be. Um, and so, again, I think that the categories of creation and providence actually cover a lot of that. And our fourth participant today is Bill Dennison. Dr. Dennison is Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Covenant College, as well as Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Northwest Theological Seminary. In terms of the length of time, this would be very difficult for me to do. I take Van Til's position on the issue of common grace. Uh, I'll try to be as brief as I possibly can with some type of outline with this. Uh, He obviously endorses the traditional view, uh, which he labels in his work uh, what he's looking at 
as the Bob and uh, Kuiper and Valentine Heth view. And that means uh, uh, the traditional view is that, is that common race uh, discuss the realm of, of God's work restraining uh, man's sinful and depraved state in history. Um, and, and secondly, uh, that, um, that Van uh, Kuyper looked at the epistemological difference between the believer and the unbeliever uh, concerning how they approached a subject as well as the means by which we're going to critique uh, out of that common grace uh, um, things that we see that is being restrained uh, by, by, by the Lord. We're going to be critiquing that, nevertheless, on the basis of the epistemological differences of faith and, un- and people who are not by faith is Kuiper's mode. However, uh, Van Til himself thinks that Bob Inc. and, and Kuiper have too many of the remnants of scholasticism in their view, and uh, his position is very, very interesting, and, um, and uh, I, I don't know and haven't seen many who have really grasped the, 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 the conception that he is uh, setting up uh, himself, and that is that, um, is that he, he sets up his position on the basis of pre-redemptive revelation, pre-redemptive revelation, and he sets it up in, 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 a, in a manner in which common grace is viewed through federal theology. In my judgment, it's genius. So in the first Adam, he sees all men are the same in Adam. They are perfect and holy. But also, there is a pre-redemptive eternal decree that all men are different that before the foundation of the world, God has the elect and God has the reprobate. When Adam comes on the scene, Van Til incorporates his own view, uh, interestingly, of revelation in this context. As Adam comes on the scene, he is existing in a concrete and holistic situation in which natural and special revelation are are concrete and holistic. They're not two abstract revelations. This corresponds with what Van Til will argue uh, concerning his view of revelation, one supernatural revelation that comes to us in two forms, special and natural. Now, what happens is that Van Til says, after the fall, then we have with respect to all men being represented in Adam's sin, we now have, corresponding with the sameness that all humanity, elect and reprobate, are objects of God's wrath. All rebel against the natural and special revelation in the garden. And, And, however, however, there's a difference also that the reprobate, after the fall, are relatively good as people who are absolutely evil, where the elect are relatively evil 
and people who are absolutely good elected, of course, here in Christ. So what happens after the fall is that Adam's pre-fall and Adam's post-fall situation is that there are those who come with various genuine variations of interpreting God, the world, and humanity. Common grace continues after the fall. This perspective, in my judgment, is really tremendous in explaining, explaining even, for example, sometimes when we read liberal commentators and we discover that they have a better understanding even of the scripture on some verses than some of our own commentators. Uh, because, you see, there's a carryover in some relative sense of, of that pre-fall state, which is common grace in terms of the concrete and holistic view of natural and special revelation. Now, obviously, in the pre-fall state, this is not special revelation in the sense of the salvation and the redemption of Christ. Until is not saying that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, there is a carryover in terms of some of this in a repressive, uh, obviously, and suppressive way, and yet in a common sense way. And it really helps for me to understand uh, a lot with respect to the unbeliever as he continues to operate in this creation. Sure. So. I think for right now, I think it opens up a lot of <laughs> a lot of issues here. I know, uh, but I think that'll be sufficient for that for that question. Yeah, let me go back. There's one thing I do want to say about common grace. Sure. One thing that's really crucial, and then I I will get into this because in one sense this operates well into the natural law question possibly as well in the long run. One other crucial issue to Van Til it. Zantil's position is antithesis must always precede common grace. Antithesis must always precede common grace. And now we shift our attention to natural law. Here is Dr. Nelson Klosterman. Well, natural law is God's, uh, the revelation of God's moral character, which is uh, embedded in creation. And it is, natural law is subject then to, to all of the vicissitudes of the fall and of the fallen creation. It is there, it exists. Uh, part of the debate and part of the, the, uh, the, the disagreement lies in the apprehensibility of the natural law. Can we apprehend the natural law? John Calvin said, with the spectacles of Scripture, thank you. We can see it, we can understand it, we can interpret it, but with the spectacles of Scripture. And is it a legitimate Reformed idea? The answer is yes, absolutely mm. yes. But it is the use to which it is put that becomes problematic. And uh, currently what we're witnessing is attempted rehabilitation of natural law using categories of pre-enlightenment reform theology to address a post-enlightenment situation. Mm. And I I think we need to be very clear on the distinction between pre-enlightenment reformed theological articulation and formulation of a doctrine of natural law, on the one hand, 
and the attempted rehabilitation post-Enlightenment today um, with, uh, with some contemporary thinkers of natural law. So, um, and, and I would conclude my answer by also referring to the Confession of Canons of Dort 344, where it says, even in things civil, even in things civil, fallen man cannot use the glimmerings or remnants of natural light, a right. Everybody knows, and I agree, with the claim that you can't get to heaven on the basis of natural light. You can't get to God. Everybody knows that. But the canons of Dort are far more specific on this when they say, even in things civil. Mm. And I think it's time people do business with that statement. Let me ask you this question, uh, just to get your direct response to it, even though I think you've already addressed it. Can you articulate a form of natural law that does not look like autonomous reasoning? Yes. Yes, I can. Okay. And I think, I think, for example, Thomas Aquinas did. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas' doctrine of natural law is, is placed squarely, though I don't agree with him, it's placed squarely within a theistic context. Yeah, that's true. Um, do you see a positive role of natural law in your understanding of the Church's relation to culture? It, it is po- Sure, there's a positive role in this sense, that uh, the Church can be confident that when it speaks about things right and wrong on the basis of God's Word to public culture, they get it. Mm. They understand what you're saying, and don't let them fool you. Because <laughs> because God has given people this, this internal uh, testimony, which they are trying to suppress, but they are doing so unsuccessfully. So, my, but my, you see, my basic complaint in the current debate is that um, I, I'm concerned that people are unwilling to name the name of Jesus Christ and to appeal in some form to the authority of Scripture in connection with public discourse. Mm. I'm not saying that we have to have a verse for every law. I'm not saying that we have to have a personal testimony for every public discussion. But um, it, is this, it is this reticence and this aversion to identifiably Christian moral argument that has me very, very concerned. Here is Doug Wilson speaking about natural law and answering the question of what it is and is it a legitimate reformed idea. Yes, uh, J. Charles, uh, J. Daryl Charles has written recently on this, and I, th- I think he makes a good case that natural law was certainly held and embraced by um, Calvin and other reformed leaders for other of uh, the magisterial reformers, and I follow them in that. I do believe in natural law, but it's important for me to, um, I guess, run ahead and say I don't buy. A, a common distortion of natural law, where uh, you have this functional schizophrenia, um, where you set natural law over against special revelation. Uh, it's not like there are two lawgivers. It's not like you have. Um, and if I could run around to uh, to illustrate this with the you know the popular two kingdoms mentality, I don't I don't mind if someone says uh, they hold the two kingdoms. I really don't I really don't mind a two kingdoms formulation just so long as you don't have two kings. 
Um, if you've got one king at the top who speaks in a unitary way, whose authority is all-encompassing and is expressed and communicated to us in different ways, then I'm, then I'm fine with it. So if the triune God of Scripture, who speaks to us one way in Scripture and another way through the stars, galaxies, and oceans, um, that is one God. And uh, so I believe that Paul is very clear in Romans 1 that there is such a thing as natural revelation. Um, but it's consistent with and it coheres with special revelation. So I don't, I don't buy sort of this um, um, a natural law approach that studies the created order and the human heart and everything and comes up with the god of deism or generic American civil religion. No, at the top you've got to find the true god. Mm. And so that's how you would articulate um, my next question, a form of natural law that does not involve any autonomous reasoning. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Uh, reason, uh, reason is given to us by God as, um, as a receptor organ for what he tells us, what he gives us and what he tells us. And rationalists err by trying to make reason into an, an, an additional source of information. So reason is like the rods and cones in my eye, uh, and, and God's revelation of himself is the sun. And I can look at the sun and see the light because of the rods and cones in my eyes. Rationalists try to make the rods and cones into a new second sun. They, they try to make it the source of light. This, it's, but it's, by definition, reason is receptive. Do you see any positive role of natural law in your understanding of the Church's relation to culture? Yes, I believe that it, um, I believe that it, is, it gives us a place where we can speak to the unbeliever with shared common ground. Now that's going to that sounds funny because I'm a Vantillian and where's the common ground? You know, uh, there is no common ground. Well, there is no common ground in the unbeliever system taken to its logical conclusion. But almost everyone in the world is a better person than they are a logician. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I always want to testify that this law, this is is given to us by the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I'm happy to say to a generic non-believer, these things that I'm saying about morality, you know they're true. I know that you know that they're true. I can make that appeal, knowing that there's something that I'm saying that's resonating in, in his heart. But I'm not going to say that that's because you, your God is true and my God is true. That's, I, I, I want it all to resolve in the one true God. Now, Daryl Hart on natural law and its position within Reformed theology. I simply defer here to the recent work by Stephen Graybill and Dave David Van Drunen, who has a big book coming out with Erdman's um, in 2010 about natural law, which is really wonderful chapters on a whole host of important Reformed figures like Kuiper and Van Til, and um, and he actually finds that. Even Kuiper and Van Til affirm natural law in ways that would be surprising to a lot of Kuiperians and Van Tilians. But um, so I, I would simply defer to those sorts of works. And, and I do think, though, that the historical record seems to be suggesting that there is a place for natural law in the Reformed tradition. 
Um, now, what natural law means, I don't like to use the term because I, I spend a lot of time with Roman Catholics, and it means something very specific to them. And I also do believe that it doesn't solve nearly the number of problems that people think it will solve, such that there was a, a kind of the, the rise of American conservative movement in the 1950s was a lot of Roman Catholics like William F. Buckley and Russell Kirk, even though Kirk wasn't a Roman Catholic at the time. There are a lot of claims made on behalf of natural law, but there's a really good book on the, the, that Catholic conservative movement by uh, historian um, uh, first name is escaping me, last name is Allett. Patrick Allett teaches at Emory, suggesting I think he's pretty good in, in, in saying that natural law didn't turn out to solve all the political problems that people thought it would. So I, I think by simply, if we if we get everybody to affirm natural law, I still think we'd have all sorts of disagreements in the public in the pu- in public life um i am much more content i well happy to call something a natural order and a um and a god-given sense of right and wrong that people have intuitively or naturally or something that i think also goes along with this idea of natural law um so that you know, every culture and every place, there are usually laws against murder and the, against stealing and things like that. But also just the, the, the sense that practically all of us have about fairness relates to a sense of justice, which I think reflects a higher – again, it's part of the, the image that we have of God, that God is, a, is just, God is righteous, and he's imparted that to us. And so we have this kind of intuitively. Now, we, we obviously um, – use it and abuse it in all sorts of ways and so that we have a very heightened sense of fairness when it comes to me but when it comes to you i don't care as much about what's fair for you you know so you know we're not good fair people but still we have this sense and so i think even though i don't like the technological term but we're the creation and we are hardwired this way and there's just something there that's inescapable um and if you want to call that natural law, I'm comfortable doing it. Okay. Um, can you articulate a form of natural law that does not look like autonomous reasoning? Um, you may have already answered that yeah, question. Yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, I guess to, I just to go back to the point with someone like a Leon Cass, um, I mean, I think he... He did a lot on his own in the sense that he spent a lot of time reading and writing and reflecting. Um, and yet all the abilities that he has come from God as part of creation in the sense – or and also part of providence in the sense that he was the son of certain parents and he inherited certain traits and genes, et cetera, et cetera. So he, I mean, he had certain brights that, I mean, so a lot of stuff that he had came to him from both God's own creation and also through the secondary means of providence. So in that, in that sense, he's not autonomous reason in that sense, even though he did act independently a lot of time to say, I'm going to do this and not this. I'm going to study this and not that. I'm going to write this and not that. Um, so, I, I think it's impossible um, to, as, to assert human autonomy. 
And in fact, I think one, I'd be interested to hear some Vantillians talk to Roman Catholics about this because one of the reasons the Roman Catholics whom I did hang out with for several years while at, at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, um, they, they were very much convinced that natural law was the, was the antidote to modern Lockean liberalism, that they saw natural law as something that was going to ensure that human beings were – were properly rooted in a created order, in a larger law, in a law-abiding or law-established law universe, and that this was really a way to, um, to resist the modern tendency toward individualism and autonomy. So in that sense, it seems to me the way that at least the Roman Catholics have construed natural law, but I also think this would apply more generally to the Western tradition, that it's, even though I can understand why some in the 20th century would have criticized natural law as leading to autonomy. It, it, it doesn't need to go there. And in fact, I think it's been, it's been a way of grounding human reasoning and human moral reflection in a, a bigger uh, understanding of creation and the creator behind that creation. Mm-hmm. And then finally on natural law, do you see a positive rule uh, of natural law in your understanding of the church's relation to culture? Um, you already mentioned the Roman Catholic yeah, idea. Yeah, I, I think I I guess in in two ways. One, if if more people thought about natural law and were educated in it, they might then think a little bit outside of the box, the box that we've inherited sometimes with the phobias about natural law, and so that might open up possibilities for reflecting on Christ culture possibilities by introducing concept of natural law. Um, directly applying natural law, though, to Christ culture issues, um, I, I guess I see the fruitfulness of it in the sense that, and, and I should have maybe said this earlier, but I do think that natural law also comports well with general revelation, which is, again, what I think creation and providence are part of. Um, and so, when Christians especially go into the public square or into common areas of life with non-believers, if they can draw upon insights from general revelation as opposed to special revelation, I think that's particularly helpful, not simply to to avoid antagonism because if you quote the Bible, you're going to get laughed at or because if you quote the Bible, you'll alienate people or something, but also because you might be able to appeal to someone else and persuade them that, no, look, at this is really the way things are. And you see that too, and we can now try to work together to oppose this or to put that stop sign here or whatever based on these these ideas, these truths that we receive from from general revelation. So in that sense, I think natural law does really open up possibilities for the way Christians can operate outside the church. So as Christians, as part of the body of Christ, as part of the, their vocations, they can then um, use natural law, if we want to call it that, as a way of um, furthering their work uh, or their vocation outside the body of Christ, um, so in their interactions with neighbors, etc. And finally, Bill Dennison. I, th- I think I think it would be absolutely absurd uh, t- 
to maintain that the that there isn't some type of um, conception of natural law that is that is um, that is presented uh, and underlining uh, uh, biblical uh, communication of biblical truth to us. Um, but to my knowledge, uh, Scripture and the confessional standards never presents an, um, a clear definition, a definition of natural law. Uh, in a lot of ways, in my judgment, the Christian tradition has inferred the concept, and I would say legitimately from Scripture, uh, and its vague allusions have, have appeared in the confessional standards. Uh, without, and I'd say without clear, precise, and substance to the concept. So, uh, I'm not exactly sure, uh, here, and as being a Vantillian, I am fully aware that Vantill uses the term himself, but exactly in the way that he is consistent to his own thought. He couches it in the same way, in the same manner as he views his apologetic method and its implications in terms of the antithesis common grace discussion. So um, whatever is stated um, by natural law, it must be couched, I would argue, in pre-redemptive revelation, when natural revelation and special revelation function uh, in correspondence or relational or continuity with each other, and not as abstract, distinct revelations. I do not want to place natural law specifically just in the context of, say, for example, natural revelation. Um, but, but that is also vague. Uh, so, in, so in terms of the Antill's position, you know, the way I'm reading him is natural law has no existence, has no understanding, has no interpretation without the God of the Bible setting up its construct. So, um, uh, and, and in this, in this, what I, um, uh, well, let me just continue at this point with this. In, in, in this context, natural law, does reflect uh, the order, God is a God of order, of the creation, that God has imposed upon it, uh, upon the creation, uh, in the sense of his divinity within consciousness, and I'm thinking here of Romans 119, and of course of moral consciousness. I'm thinking here, uh, of course, of Romans 2, 14 through 15, that God places on uh, all humans, uh, which justifies uh, his wrath and makes people, uh, makes all humans without excuse before him. But I don't find natural law as a huge issue um, in, um, in, the, in Scripture, um, it's not a huge issue, even though the idea, I'm sure, is what is going to be uh, is reflected is the phrase "light of nature" in Scripture. Uh, in the, excuse me, "light of nature" in the confessional standards. Uh, I don't find it as a as a, a huge issue uh, 
with respect to um, our own understanding of 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 Christ in culture in the final analysis. Um, uh, we just must be careful here. Um, my big point would be, and this might be fleshed out a little bit later, is that natural law, and this would be Van Til's point, natural law must not be defined by the Greeks or the Romans. Mm. Then as a follow-up, um, we've already touched on it, of course. Do you see a positive role of natural law in your understanding of the Church's relation to culture? I, I don't think... Uh, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way. The as we understand the context, some way in in relationship to to common grace, it can be it can be sometimes helpful in the discussion. But I don't see it as 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 a big issue. I don't see it as something that it should be tried to be some type of whole philosophy or articulation of it, uh, and which it now tries to make bound, uh, in some ways, bind the conscience of the Church uh, in, this, in, this, in this area. I, I, I hesitate to put it like this right now, because I, I may be unfair here, but I'm almost sensing uh, a canonization of this, and the uh, of natural law in in recent in recent discussion uh and which i um uh, do not have any sympathy for because i'm not exactly sure how it's being how it's being really uh, articulated and um and and formulated to make it such a a a uh, a strong point i would say this it's while I was a classical apologist, when I was a classical apologist before I came a Vantillian, natural law was huge to me, and um, and uh, it, because of of its association and my affinity with being in a classical uh, method of apologetics with Aquinas, um, I not I'm not going to uh, I'm not allowing myself. Uh, Aquinas to define my view of natural law, uh, which comes out of the Greeks and the Romans and the, in a Vantillian scheme. And that's what I think Vantill is doing. And now we shift to our third theological undercurrent, that of eschatology. Here is Nelson Klosterman. Well, culture changes uh, as history moves along. Uh, there are, culture is basically man's response to God in the, in the created world. Um, and I believe that uh, eschatology is, is driven by protology, which is to say that uh, the end bears some relationship and resemblance to the beginning and that culture is um, is the maturation, the maturing of uh, of the creation, with uh, man's contribution 
and that this maturation is going to undergo purification, it's going to undergo um, cleansing at the return of Jesus Christ, but I'm also persuaded that um, the fruits of human activity, insofar as they meet God's standards, and insofar as they accord with his character and person, and render him glory, that they're going to be um, welcomed and received in the new heavens and the new earth. So that what we do here is not nothing, and it's not for nothing. What we do here, with all of its imperfection, and there, uh, there is a lot, um, will be um, purified and sanitized by the grace of God. Does your understanding of eschatology affect your understanding of the place of the fine arts, then? Does my understanding of eschatology affect my understanding of the place of the fine arts? Yeah, in in the eschaton or consummation, I'm looking at oh, particularly... Well, I, oh, um, I, I, I do believe that we're going to be enjoying the best of the best of the best, mm. in, in, you know, when, when the new heavens and the new earth arrive, that... Uh, you know the, the 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 beauty of Mozart and Bach and so on, and the beauty of of Picasso and and other artists is going to be uh, is going to be enhanced. It's going to be multiplied and deepened, and uh, it's going to serve uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. All right. And then our our last question under eschatology: How is the civil government best understood in relation to redemptive history? Well, the civil government is best understood as, um, in terms of, from God's perspective, it is seen as the, as the instrument of restraint of sin. If the government is doing its job, it's going to punish wrongdoers, and it's going to reward good doers. Um, in ter- from God's point of view, the government, the civil government, is also um, a, a, a preserver of the of the arena, the territory, the ground for the gospel to work, and it's. I'm thinking of a covenant with Noah, for example, in Genesis nine, and uh, and so on. That 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 covenant was actually redemptive in providing some stipulations for how civil government works. It was serving redemption. It's thoroughly redemptive in terms of uh, the, its place in Revelation. Now today. Um, Today, because civil government has become subject to the will of the people, the will of the masses, it's tough to articulate how we can translate this and how we can how we can get it to serve God's purposes in the world. That's why I kept saying, from God's point of view, I'm not, I'm not sure how to express it from our point of view, other than to say, other than to say, it, it ought to be administering justice. And now, here is Doug Wilson speaking on the role of eschatology in impacting culture. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly changes, and I, I believe that uh, although when Christ comes again, and, and, we, uh, and the dead are raised, and we have the final consummation of all things, while I believe that that's a radical discontinuity, I don't believe it to be an absolute, discon- uh, an absolute discontinuity. So I, I just recently, uh, my latest book is Five Cities That Ruled the World, and it's, it, it points out that we begin with a garden and end with a garden city. And 
I, I believe that it's important for us to see the sweep of human history as all contributing something to the consummation, the, the world that will be raised, uh, the, the, the world that will be um, raised to eternal newness is this world, just like my body is going to be raised. So the, so the uh, created order groans, longing for the day when the sons of God are manifested. So I believe that this world and the cultures of this age are all going to participate in the final redemption. Nothing good will ever be finally lost. Mm. Okay. Um, how is the civil government best understood in its relation to redemptive history? Uh, well, um, for much of redemptive history, civil government has been um, an obstacle or an enemy of it, a, a competing God, a competing um, center of religious demands, you know, um, and Jesus opposes them when he says you cannot, um, uh, you know, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the God the things that are God's. Don't make the mistake of rendering to God the things that are Caesar's or, or rendering to Caesar the things that are God's. And the thing that many people miss there is that he said that giving something to Caesar is okay if Caesar managed to get his picture on it. If, <laughs> you know, you know, if he if his image is on it, go ahead and give it to Caesar. Well, everybody sees that the coin has Caesar's image on it, but what has God's image on it? Well, we do. And so we are prohibited from rendering ourselves, our souls, our beings, to Caesar. But Caesars, unbelieving Caesars, consistently have wanted to claim that right. They want to claim, they, as the book says in the book of Revelation, they traffic in the souls of men. And and we ought to resist that and have nothing to do with it. And to submit to that is to take the mark of the beast. Mm. And finally, uh, last question under eschatology, or last two. Uh, what about the arts and culture uh, in, in that specific regard, uh, artistic endeavors through time? Does your understanding of eschatology affect your understanding of the place of the arts? Yes, it does. I, I believe that there is... Uh, again, going back to what I said earlier, if you take it in 500-year increments, yes, I, I, I see technological progress, I see political progress, I see aesthetic progress, if you take the long view. If you take it in 20-year increments, you can see, you know, plenty of decline, educational decline, you know, societies. It's, um, so as a, eschatologically, I'm a post-millennialist, and so I believe that there will be a a glorious fulfillment of the Great Commission in history before the Lord returns and that the world will be effectively Christianized and, and the earth will be full of the, Lord, the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's going to have political, cultural, economic, artistic ramifications. It's, it's going to be glorious. But that, um, so how, about, how do we get from here to there? I don't believe the kingdom of God takes off like the space shuttle so that at any given second you're farther ahead of where you were, you know, 30 seconds before. I believe it's more like walking up this, the side of a long mountain where there are many crags and canyons and gulches that you go down into while going up overall. Uh, there are also many um, um, challenges and many difficulties. And so I think we're in one such trough right now. Uh, but if, if you take the 500-year Snapshot, I think we're in better shape than we were 500 years ago. 
Here is Daryl Hart. Well, I think before the, I mean, I, I do think that that Christ and culture relate differently in the different different periods of redemptive history. So before the fall, they're one. After their fall, um, I mean, the fall severs them in some ways, and so there are, there are all sorts of efforts to try to get them back together. Israel is one attempt where you have, especially with regard to politics, you have much more of a fusion. But I think with the coming of Christ, that clearly Israel is no longer the paradigm for Christ and culture. And it seems to me that then um, the, um, the Pentecost you know, reveals that Christianity is going to be in all cultures and in some ways culture-less or at least not culture-bound in the way. That the Jew- so the Jews had a way of eating, a way of doing all sorts of things, and Christians will could also be Greeks. They could in their food and their in their language, they could be English in their food and their language, etc. Um, and so you don't have that fusion. And but then I I believe, although I I do think it's we're all speculating about what the new heavens and new earth will be like. But I mean, I. In a, in a general sense, it's going to be a fusion, again, and, and a restoration in some way. But even – it'll go beyond – I mean, it'll be a blessedness that, that Adam would have inherited had he, had he been faithful. So um, – but it'll be, again, a kind of reunion of Christ and culture. So in that sense, there are different epics, and they work out – I think work out differently. And if I were ever to write a book on Christ and culture, which I sometimes thought, I would sort of want to get that grid in there at some point, I think – Especially the difference between uh, creation and then Israel and then the church yes. and then the consummation are, are useful to keep in mind. So given that understanding, how uh, is the civil government best understood in relation to uh, culture and the church, redemptive historically or eschatologically? Are there similar contours uh, regarding the civil government's role? Um, well, I know, I guess I, I've, I used to know anyway, although I can't, that, that civil, some would say civil government is a creation ordinance. Maybe not. Um, but I, I, I mean, I do think that after the fall, you need civil government to restrain evil. Sure. Um, and in new heavens and new earth, you will not need civil government. Sure. Um, so some of the some of the things will pass away. Um, th- what the way God uses civil government redemptively it seems to me is different for Israel and then times after Israel. So Israel, you have a real case where God is using a particular political arrangement, the theocracy or or the monarchy anyway, to achieve His ends. Even though, of course, it doesn't go very well um but um and it it just doesn't seem to me that you have that kind of specificity anymore in the age of the church where there the redemptive uh plan of god is going ahead almost exclusively with the church and not with respect to the civil government or other institutions um except for for marriage and the family perhaps um and and marriage and the families are really interesting too and I, i uh, I mean, there, the idea that there's not going to be marriage in the new heavens and new earth, and yet marriage was a creation ordinance, suggests that there is even discontinuity between creation, which was all good, and the and the consummation, which is better. Um, 
And what's even also kind of interesting about that is that we will still be in bodies because our Lord had a body when he was resurrected. And I think he was still masculine. Um, And that means that we will have sexual organs that won't be in use in effect. I mean, so, I mean, marriage was in part an outlet for our sexual organs, um, and yet we'll be male and female conceivably in the new heavens and new earth and not have any outlet for that maleness or femaleness, supposedly. Now, you know, fuller revelation will likely come with this new arrangement. But so... And, and so marriage is even logical dimensions to sex, right? But we don't have to get right. into that. But so they I mean that's even different. But there's an eschatological dimension than to marriage. But which is, which is also though. I mean, this is a marriage is, is an institution, creation ordinance, which is a way to be fruitful and multiply. And that's something that Adam and Eve were commanded to do, and it's also something Noah was commanded to do. And so it's just part of what humans do is being fruitful and multiply, multiplying. And then when Christians are fruitful and multiply, they actually create covenant children. So, I mean, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a redemptive aspect to marriage for Christians that there isn't for the other, even though the uh, marriage for non-Christians is a good thing. We want to be pro-marriage uh, for, for a variety of reasons. But again, this is that public nature of why we want to be pro-marriage as opposed to the, the Christian one of just saying so that they'll be God-fearing people. Mm-hmm. I don't uh, know if that helps to answer. Good, that's good. Yeah. And then uh, our final one under eschatology here. Um, what about the arts eschatologically? Does your understanding of eschatology or redemptive history affect your understanding of the place of the arts? Boy, I I struggle with this. Um, I mean, there there are the uh, the NT right. Kuyperian strand of things which kind of have a progressive view of cultural development or have are prone to this and see the unfolding of artistic achievement um, as coinciding with a greater advancement of the kingdom of grace for, perhaps um, but then I'm struck by I can't remember which epistle from Peter where everything's just going to get burnt and and so the big question is continuity between um, this epic of, of redemptive history and the one to come. And I guess I generally tend to think because there was so much discontinuity, even though, of course, I want to affirm continuity, and I don't want to sound like a dispensationalist, but there's, of course there's continuity within the covenant of grace between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but there was also remarkable discontinuity, which is why so many Jews just couldn't figure out what Jesus was up to. Um, even to the very end, you get Peter taking out this sword. And, you know, they just didn't know what was going on. Um, and I would be right there with them. I wouldn't know any better if weren't it for Christ's resurrection and, sure. and the coming of the Spirit. But um, so I do think that my, my tendency is to think there's going to be discontinuity. And so I don't see the arts as necessarily giving us a window into um, – where redemptive history is going or the consummation. I mean, I think they're good. And this is where, again, I would appeal to creation and providence to say why art is good, because this is what God's image bearers do. They can make things like this. And God, it's a remarkable God that we have who gives us these kinds of delights. Um, But we don't need to give them significance by saying they're part of redemptive 
purpose of God. I don't necessarily think they are redemptive. I think they can be good just in terms of create of the created order. They don't have to be they don't have to be baptized. I mean, I do think that sometimes I get I feel like the Kyperians want to make everything religious or holy or redemptive because they're uncomfortable with creation being good in and on in and of its own terms. Now, of course, the fall put a bit of a monkey wrench into creation being good in and of its own terms. But still, there's a residue of goodness there because God created it. And, and there's a residue of, of, of goodness or rightness or appropriateness in, in human beings who are still fallen and desperately wicked. I want to affirm all that, but they still bear God's image in some ways and, and think and write and, and do creative things that God created human beings to do. So there's a, there's a goodness to them, even despite their depravity, because of who they are in this created order that God... And, and so I, I think keeping uh, redemptive and creational categories separate is very useful. And, and again, I, I just am struck so often um, by the discontinuity between creation and redemption in the New Testament. And I was reminded of this recently at the funeral service um, for a saint at our church where um, the sermon came from John 4 on the water. And and the, the contrast between the living water that Christ could give this woman as opposed to the pure water, perhaps from the well, uh, is is just striking. One is going to give eternal life. The other one is not. So we can have as much bottled water as we want, and we can get to find the purest springs in the world. They're not going to give us eternal life. And I don't see that recognition enough on some of the <clears throat> cultural transformation people that that city planning, uh, good architecture, fine paintings, a good meal, these are all great things, but they don't redeem. And they don't have to be redeemed to be good. They, they're, they're good because of the part of the created order, and and the and the water that 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 the Samaritan woman, or no, was she Samaritan? Was giving to Christ was could have been very pure, incredibly pure. It could have been something that any Coca Cola would want a bottle, but it it just wasn't good enough. Yeah. So I mean, so the contrast between that kind of living water and natural water, it seems to me, is useful for thinking about the difference between. Redemption and creation, Christ and culture. In closing our discussion on eschatology, here is Bill Dennison. Well, I, 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 I look at, you know, like I said before, I'm, you know, I, t- I take an Augustinian position. And, uh, and so I look at the, the problem that, that I always start with, with, uh, with people at this point, at least at this, this mode, is, is I do not accept a monistic conception of culture. That is the problem often in the discussion. Starting with Niebuhr's Christ in culture, we uh, at least in some of the consciousness of even Reformed people, we discuss the discussion. Uh, we we discuss the issue of culture as a monistic construction. In other words, 
culture itself is a monistic monistic uh, uh, structure itself or or phenomenon. No, uh, from the beginning, from the fall, uh, we now have we move to uh, after the fall. We move to two cultures. There are two cultures that exist in the creation. And the two cultures are the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. That is the two cultures. You cannot transform the seed of the serpent. That culture that exists, that culture is not transformable because it already has received and has pronounced upon it the eschatological judgment of God. So that that coexists. I'm talking here, obviously, following the line of Augustine and also following the line of, of, of Voss. Uh, and so as we come into the, uh, the, the... And that means the present evil age versus the age to come. So, uh, and in that, we have the journey of, of, of pilgrims. We are understood in Scripture. Abraham is the exposition. He is an exposition of the church. He is the exposition of the people of God throughout uh, redemptive history. We are a pilgrim people. And therefore, this is not our this is not our home. Our home has already been set aside as the culture, if you wish to use that term, or the city of God. And and we are told, I believe, I take very seriously that the 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 the, the, um, the culture of the seed of the serpent will be terminated. It will be terminated at the second coming of Christ, and that culture has already begun to be terminated by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. And uh, so that's how that's how I I I look at this. And at the end, the final end, uh, we uh, as the words <laughs> the words of of Calvin is that uh, is that the earth is a place. If heaven is our home. What is earth but our place of exile? And that's the imagery that comes through from Genesis to Revelation. Um, It's almost as if when I read these discussions of culture uh, and and Christianity and also uh, concerning transformation, restoration, and all that uh, kind of imagery projected on culture, it's almost as if I am finding feel that the, the book of Hebrews is extracted out of the canon. Uh, it's, it, I think the book of Hebrews as, is a clear exposition uh, concerning the state of the believer and the relationship to the eternal existence. Um, but nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, uh, I'll just leave that sit at, at this point. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, that, is the, uh, that is the point, but that is the, the position that I uh, that I'm holding to, and and also I would I would point out this. I want to I want to make this statement. One of the things that I've started to do in the last number of years is try to become more and more sensitive 
to this kind of uh, statement, uh, implied statement by Voss himself, to unpack one's eschatology, you will unpack one's soteriology. I'm, I'm putting that in a little bit different way than Voss does it. But, you know, if I understand how a individual looks at the future, I can understand how they're going to con- construct the present. And that's going to be, int- that is interesting, because then you can apply that even to the discussion of natural law and also, and, and other things. I start looking at the history of, of thought uh, in that manner. I'll start looking at, I look at Hegel that way. I look at Marx that way. I start looking at how they understand the future, how they understand eschatology in the structure of their own thought. When you unpack that, you'll understand how everything comes together in terms of how they look at their own, uh, the position of soteriology. And don't let it be missed that every, every, um, uh, even non-Christian has a position concerning creation, fall, and redemption within their own structure, their own thought. I always try to tell my students, that's what you try to unpack, and you unpack that with your artist and so forth as well. Uh, that's, how you, that's how you work with that. So, um, yeah, uh, and then you, but you as a Christian must take your stance with union with Christ in the heavenly places, and that, and that going back to Augustine's, by Augustine's point, I will repeat it at this point, is by grace a pilgrim below, by grace a citizen above. And those, then that points to the, to the believer's position in the world, and it also points to the fact that we have, there are two cultures, implies the other culture of, this, of the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God. There's only two entities. There's no middle ground. And there's no uh, there's no compromise between those two kingdoms, and in in uh, in the eschatological sense, that's that's how I see history. That's how I see how I work with thought, and that's how um, I understand our position as we are in this world. Well, really briefly, then related to and this is obviously is going to fit into what you just said. Um, how is the civil government best understood in relation to redemptive historic or redemptive history and eschatology then? The civil government? Yes, yes. It will come to an end. <laughs> sure. And then and then uh, it comes to an end and 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 then and all and all all kings in some way uh, will kiss the feet of the sun. Amen. <laughs> I may quote the psalmist. <laughs> yes, and then uh, again, uh, also related, but slightly different. Uh, what about the fine arts through time? Does your understanding of eschatology affect your understanding of the place of the fine arts? Oh yes. You see, the the, the point here would be, you know, the the point that I that maybe I haven't stressed well enough. Here. Well, I'm asking questions, the even Christian, though I no, that's fine. Yeah, yeah the Christian must live. He lives his life out of heaven. We are more than conquerors. We have already, through Jesus Christ, that's Paul's theme. Colossians 3, 3, 1 and 2. The Ephesians 1, we are already in the heavenly places. Paul 
The church lives out of heaven right now. That's how we exist. That's how we live. And so that that's gonna that that <laughs> I'm here's where I'm really kite period. <laughs> okay. But it, it's really biblical. The Colossians three seventeen passage I come back to again and that is but I'm cutting the grass. If I if my daughters are dancing for ballet, if I you know, I was the basketball coach at Covenant for three years, as I'm trying to instill still in terms of the, the student uh, athlete uh, with respect to sports, whatever they're doing, whatever we do, if you're cooking, <laughs> you're serving the meal to people out of your status as one is heaven. Uh, maybe, a, maybe a great example would be a really a, a concrete example that was presented to me uh, by a doctor that would be helpful. If the Christian doctor is doing a surgery with a non-Christian doctor, they're side by side. Okay. This Christian doctor asked me, now what am I doing different? You know, we're still trying, we're, we're, we're operating, we're using uh, the same basic uh, mentality as we're communicating on how to perform this surgery, using the same instruments, we're doing the same thing. So how am I different than, the, than that non-Christian surgeon that is working with me at the same time? I says, because you're operating with the self-consciousness of your vocation out of heaven. That person isn't. The issue is out of the heart flows the issues of life. That's what's at the heart of what Christ's talking about and where your status is. And so what you're bringing into that person's existence at that point is you're bringing in a temporal way, in a temporal way, I said to him, granted, this person will still die, but through your epistemological self-consciousness in terms of your vocation, you're bringing out of heaven the Christ as the great physician in terms of, in terms of trying to help this person uh, in terms of temporal healing of their body. The non-Christian, the non-Christian physician there who you're working with has no such consciousness. He's just trying to get the person better. He may be just trying to make money, <laughs> whatever his motives. He may have good humanistic motives, but the point is he's not operating in terms of faith union with Christ from the heavenly places and seeing Christ as the doctor does. You're operating as a temporal representative of the great physician, Jesus Christ, from the heavenly places in this situation. And that's all the world of difference in that case. Thank you for listening to this installment of our Christ and Culture discussion. Please visit reformedforum.org for more information and a place to comment and interact with other listeners. There you can also find our other programs, including the Reformed Media Review and our newest, Philosophy for Theologians. If you would like to get a hold of us, please email us at mail at reformedforum.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.